Chapter Twenty of *The Side of the Angels* by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Twenty. Claude found it a vivid and curious contrast to dine that evening with the Darlings and their sophisticated friends. The friends were even more sophisticated than Claude himself, since they had more money, had travelled more, and in general lived in a broader world. But Claude knew that it was in him to reach their standards, and to go beyond them. All he needed was the opportunity, and opportunity to a handsome young American of good antecedents like himself is rarely wanting. He never took in that fact so clearly as on this night. He was glad that he had not been placed next to Elsie at table, for the reason that he felt some treachery to Rosie in his being there at all. Conversely, in the light of false judgment, he felt some treachery to Elsie, that he should come to her with Rosie's kisses on his lips. Not that he owed her any explanations, from one point of view. Considering the broad latitude of approach and withdrawal allowed to American young people, and the possibility of playing fast and loose with some amount of mutual comprehension, he owed her no explanations whatever. But the fact remained that she was expressing a measure of willingness to be Juliet to his Romeo, in braving the mute antagonism that existed between their respective families. As far as that went, he knew he was unwelcome to the darlings, but he knew too that Elsie's favour carried over her parents' heads the point of his coming and going. It was conceivable that she might carry over their heads a point more important still, if he were to urge her. To the Claude who was, it seemed lamentable that he couldn't urge her, but to the Claude who might be were higher things than the gratification of fastidious social tastes, and for the moment that Claude had some hope of the ascendant. It was that Claude who spoke, when, after dinner, the men had rejoined the ladies. "'Your mother doesn't like my coming here.' Elsie threw him one of her frank, flying glances. "'Well, she's asked you, hasn't she?' He smiled. "'She only asked me at the last minute. I can see some other fellow must have dropped out.' "'You can see it because it's a dinner-party of elderly people to which you naturally wouldn't be invited unless there had been the place to fill.' "'That constantly happens when people entertain as much as we do. "'But it isn't a slight to be asked to come to the rescue. "'It's a compliment. "'You never ask people to do that unless you count them as real friends.' "'He insisted on his point. "'I don't suppose it was her idea.' "'You mean it was mine? "'But even if it was, it comes to the same thing. "'She asked you. "'She needn't have done it.' "'He still insisted. "'She did, but she didn't want to.' he added, lowering his voice significantly, and she was right. He forced himself to return her gaze, which rested on him with unabashed inquiry. Everything about her was unabashed. She was free from the conventional manners of maidendom, not as one who has been emancipated from them, but as one who has never had them. She might have belonged to a generation that had outgrown the need for them, as perhaps she did. Shyness, coyness, and emphasised reserve formed no part of her equipment, but on the other hand she was clear, clear with a kind of crystalline clearness in eyes, in complexion, and in the staccato quality of her voice. "'She's right. How?' "'Right, because I oughtn't to come. I'm, I'm not free to come.' "'Do you mean—' She paused, not because she was embarrassed, but only to find the right words. She kept her eyes on his with a candour he could do nothing but reciprocate. "'Do you mean that you're bound elsewhere?' He nodded. Matt said, "'Oh!' 
she withdrew her eyes at last, letting her gaze wander vaguely over the music-room, about which the other guests were seated. They were lined on gilded settees against the white French-panelled walls, while a young man played Chopin's ballade in A-flat on a grand piano in the far corner. Not being in the music-room itself, but in the large square hall outside, the two young people could talk in low tones without disturbing the company. If she betrayed emotion, it was only in the nervousness with which she tapped her closed fan against the palm of her left hand. Her eyes came back to his face. "'I'm glad you've told me,' he took a virtuous tone. "'I think those things ought to be, uh, to be open and above board.' "'Oh, of course. The wonder is that I shouldn't have heard it. One generally does.' "'Oh, well, you wouldn't in this case. "'Isn't it anybody about here?' "'It's someone about here, but not anyone you would have heard of. "'She lives in our village. She's the daughter of a, well, of a market gardener.' "'How interesting! And you're in love with her?' "'But because of what she saw in his face, she went on quickly. "'No, I won't ask you that. Don't answer. Of course you're in love with her. "'I think it's splendid, a man with your—' "'Chances was the word that suggested itself.' but she made it future. A man with your future to fall in love with a girl like that? There was a bright glow in her face to which he tried to respond. He said that which, owing to its implications, he could not have said to any other girl in the world, but could say to her because of her twentieth-century freedom from the artificial. Now you see why I shouldn't come. She gave a little assenting nod. Yes, perhaps you'd better not, for a while. Not quite so often, at any rate. "'By and by, I dare say, we shall get everything on another another basis, and then—' She rose, so that he followed her example, but he shook his head. "'No, we shan't. There won't be any more other basis.' She took this with her usual sincerity. "'Well, perhaps not. I don't suppose we can really tell yet. We must just see.' "'When he stops,' she added, with scarcely a change of tone, as she moved away from him, "'do go over and talk to Mrs. Boyce.' She likes attentions from young men. What Claude chiefly retained of his brief conversation was the approval in the words, I think it's splendid. He thought it splendid himself. He felt positive now that if he had pressed his suit, if he had been free to press it, he might one day have been treading this polished floor not as guest, but as master. There were no difficulties in the way that couldn't easily be overcome if he and Elsie had been of a mind to do it, and she would have a good fifty thousand a year. Yes, it was splendid. There was no other word for it. He was giving up this brilliant future for the sake of little Rosie Fay, and counting the world well lost. The sense of self-approval was so strong in him that as he travelled homeward he felt the great moment to have come. He must keep his word. He must be a gentleman. He was flattered by the glimpse he had got of Elsie Darling's heart, and yet the fact that she might have come to love him acted on him as an incentive rather than the contrary, to carrying out his plans. She would see him in a finer, nobler light. As long as she lived, and even when she had married someone else, she would keep her dream of him as the magnificently romantic chap who could love a village maid and be true to her. And he did love a village maid. He knew that now by certain infallible signs. He knew it by the very meagreness of his regret in giving up Elsie Darling and all that the winning of her would have implied. He knew it by the way he thrilled when he thought of Rosie's body trembling against his, as it had trembled that afternoon. He knew it by the wild tingle of his nerves when she shuddered at the name of Thor. 
That is, he thought she had shuddered, but of course she hadn't. What had she to shudder at? He was brought up against that question every time the unreasoning fear of four possessed him. He knew the fear to be unreasoning. However possible it might be to suspect Rosie, and a man was always ready to suspect the woman he loved, to suspect Thor was absurd. Even the matter of Rosie's diary, Thor was acting queerly. There was an explanation of that queerness which would do him credit. Of that no one who knew Thor could have any question, and at the same time keep his common sense. Claude couldn't deny that he was jealous, but when he came to analyse his passion in that respect, he found it nothing but a dread lest his own supineness might allow Rosie to be snatched away from him. He'd been dilly-dallying over what he should have clinched. He'd been afraid of the sacrifice he would be compelled to make without realising, as he realised to-night, that Rosie would be worth it. No later than to-morrow he would buy a licence and a wedding-ring, and, if possible, marry her in the evening. Before the fact accomplished, difficulties, and God knew there were a lot of them, would smooth themselves away. As he left the tram-car at the village terminus, he was too excited to go home at once, so he passed his own gate and went on towards Thor's. It was not yet late. He could hear Thor's voice reading aloud as the maid admitted him, and could follow the words while he took off his overcoat and silk hat and laid them carefully on one of the tapestried chairs. He still followed them as he straightened his cravat before the glass, pulled down his white waistcoat and smoothed his hair. Christ's mission, therefore, Thor read on, was not to relieve poverty, but to do away with it. It was to do away with it not by abolition, but by evolution. It is clear that to Christ poverty was not a disease, but a symptom, a symptom of a sick-body politic. To suppress the symptom without undertaking the cure of the whole body would have been false to the thoroughness of his methods. Claude appeared on the threshold. Lois smiled. Thor looked up. "'Hello, Claude. Come in. Just wait a minute.' Reading Weibart's Christ and Poverty. Only a few more lines to the end of the chapter. To the teaching of Christ, Thor continued, belongs the discovery that the causes of poverty are economic only in the second place, and moral in the first. Economic conditions are shifting, changing vitally within the space of a generation. Nothing is permanent but the moral, as nothing is effectual. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbour as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments hangs also the solution of the problems of poverty, seeing that a race that obeys them finds no such problems confronting it. In proportion to the spread of moral obedience, these problems tend to disappear. They were never so near to disappearing as now, when the moral sense has become alive to them. Claude smoked a cigar while they sat and talked. It was talk in which she personally took little share, but from which she sought to learn whether or not Thor was satisfied with what he had done. If there was any arrière-pensée, he thought he might detect it by looking on. It was a pleasant scene, Lois with her sewing, Thor with his book. The library had that characteristic of American libraries in general, of being the most cheerful room in the house. "'What I complain of in all this,' Thor said, tossing the book on the table, is the intermediary suffering. It does no good to the starving of to-day to know that in another thousand years men will have so have grasped the principles of Christ that want will be abolished. Lois smiled over her saying, You might as well say that it does no good to the people who have to walk to-day, or travel by trains and motors, 
to know that in a hundred years the common method of getting about will probably be by flying. This writer lays it down as a principle that there's a rate for human progress, and it's no use expecting man to get on faster than he has the power to go. I don't expect him to get on faster than he has the power to go. I only want him to go faster than he's going. Haven't you seen others who wanted the same thing, dragging people off their feet, with the result that legs or necks were broken? Oh, that's absurd, of course, but between that and quickening the stride there's a difference. Exactly, which is what Weibart says. His whole argument is that if you want to do away with poverty, you must begin at the beginning, and neither in the middle nor at the end. People used to begin at the end when they imagined the difficulty be met by temporarily supplying wants. Now they're beginning in the middle by looking for social and economic readjustments, which won't be effective for more than a few years at a time. To begin at the beginning, as I understand him to say, they must get at themselves with a new point of view and a new line of action toward one another. They must try the Christian method, which they never have tried, or put up with poverty and other inequalities. It's futile to expect to do away with them by the means they are using now, and that, she added in defence of the author she was endeavouring to sum up, seems to me perfectly true. Without following the line of argument in which he took no interest, Claude spoke out of his knowledge of his brother. "'Trouble with Thor is that he's in too much of a hurry. Won't let anything take its own pace.' That was so like a paraphrase in Claude's language of Uncle Sim's poetistic ditty that Thor winced. "'Take its own pace and stop still,' he said scornfully. "'And then,' Lois resumed tranquilly, You've got to remember that Weibart has a spiritual as well as a historical line of argument. The evolution of the human race isn't merely a matter of following out certain principles. It depends on the degree of its conscious association with divine energy. Isn't that what he says? The closer the association, the faster the progress. Where there's no such association, progress is clogged or stopped. You remember thoughts in the chapter, Fellow Workers with God. I couldn't make it out. Thor said with some impatient, "'Fellow workers with God, I, I don't see what that means.' "'Then until you do see—' Apparently she thought better of what she was about to say, and suppressed it. The conversation drifted to cognate subjects, while Claude became merely an observer. He wanted to be perfectly convinced that Thor was happy, that Lois was happy he could see. Happiness was apparent in every look and line of her features, and every movement of her person. She was like another woman. All that used to seem wistful in her and unfulfilled had resolved itself into radiant contentment. According to Claude, you could see it with half an eye. She had gained in authority and looks, while she had developed a power of holding her own against her husband that would probably do him good. As to Thor, he was less sure. He looked older than one might have expected him to look. There was an expression in his face that was hardly to be explained by marriage and a two-months' visit to Europe. Claude was not analytical, but he found himself saying, "'Looks like a chap who's been through something. What?' Being through something meant more than the experience incidental to a wedding and a honeymoon. With that thought, torture began to gnaw at Claude's soul again, so that when his brother was called to the telephone to answer a lady who was asking what her little boy should take for a certain pain— he sprang the question on Lois. "'What do you really think of Thor? You don't suppose he has anything on his mind, do you?' Lois was startled. "'Do you?' "'I asked first. 
Well, what made you? Oh, I don't know. Two or three things. I just wondered if you'd noticed it. Her face clouded. I haven't noticed that he had anything on his mind. I knew already, he told me before we were married, that there was something about which he wasn't, wasn't quite happy. I dare say you know what it is. He shook his head. Don't you? Well, neither do I. He may tell me some day, until then, but I thought he was better lately, more cheerful. Hasn't he been cheerful? Oh, yes, quite, as a rule. But, of course, I've seen— They were interrupted by Thor's return, after which Claude took his departure. He woke in the morning with a frenzy that astonished himself to put into execution what he had resolved. With his nervous volatility he had half expected to feel less intensely on the subject after having slept on it, but everything that could be called a desire in his nature had focused itself now into the passion to make Rosie his own. That first, and all else afterward. That first. But he could neither see beyond it, nor did he want to see. The excitement he had been tempted to ascribe on the previous evening to his talk with Elsie Darling, and perhaps in some degree to a glass or two of champagne, having become intensified, it was a proof of its being the real thing. He was sure now that it was not only the real thing, but that it would be lasting. There was no spasmodic breeze through his Aeolian harp, but the breath and life of his being. He came to this conclusion as he packed a bag that he could send for toward evening, and made a few other preparations for a temporary absence from his father's house. Putting one thing with another, he had reason to feel sure that he and Rosie would be back there together before long, forgiven and received, so that he was relieved of the necessity of taking a farewell. "'I think it's splendid,' rang in his heart like a cheer. "'Anyone would think it splendid who knew what he was going to do and what he was renouncing.' It was annoying that on reaching the spot where he took the electric car to go to town, old Jasper Fay should be waiting there. It was still more annoying that among the other intending passengers there should be no one whom Claude knew. To drop into conversation with a friend would have kept Fay at a distance. Just now his appearance, neat, shabby, pathetic, the superior working man in his long-preserved, threadbare Sunday clothes, introduced disturbing notes into the swelling hymeneal chant to which Claude felt himself to be marching. There were practical reasons, too, why he should have preferred to hold no intercourse with Fay till after he had crossed his Rubicon. He nodded absently, therefore, and, passing to the far end of the little straggling line, prayed that the car would quicken its speed in coming. Through the turn of his eye he could see Fay detach himself from the patient group of watchers and shamble in his direction. "'What's it to be now?' Claude said to himself, but he stood his ground. He stood his ground without turning or recognising Fay's approach. He leaned nonchalantly on his stick, looking wearily up the line for rescue, till he heard a nervous cough. The nervous cough was followed by the words, huskily spoken, "'Mr. Claude!' He was obliged to look around. There was something about Fay that was at once mild and hostile, truculent and apologetic. He spoke respectfully, and yet with a kind of anger in the gleam of his starry eyes. "'Mr. Claude, I wish you wouldn't hang round my place any more. It don't do anyone any good.' Claude was weighing the advantages of avowing himself plainly on the spot, when Fay went on. "'One experience of that kind has been about enough in one year.' Claude's heart seemed to stop beating. "'One experience of what kind?' "'You're all mastermans together.' Fay declared bitterly. 
I don't trust any of you. You're both your father's sons. Claude cried to himself. Aloud, he said with no display of emotion, I don't understand you. I don't know what you mean. Fay merely repeated hoarsely, I don't want either of you coming any more. Claude took a tone he considered crafty. Oh, come now, Mr. Fay, even if you don't want me, I shouldn't think you'd object to my brother Thor. Your brother Thor. You've a nice brother Thor. Why, what's he done? Ask my little girl. No, you needn't ask her. She wouldn't tell you. She won't tell me. All I know is what I've seen. If it hadn't been for the decencies and the people standing by, Claw could have sprung on the old man and clutched his throat. All he could do, however, was to say peacefully, And what have you seen? Fay looked around to ensure himself that no one was within earshot. The car was bearing down on them with a crashing buzz, so that he was obliged to speak rapidly. "'I've seen him creep into my hot-house where my little girl was at work, under cover of the night, and I've seen him steal away. And when I've looked in after he was gone, she was crying fit to kill herself.' "'What made you wait till he went away?' Claude asked fiercely. "'Why didn't you go in after him and see what they were up to?' The old man's face expressed the helplessness of the average American parent in conflict with a child. "'Oh, she wouldn't let me. She wouldn't have none of my interference. She says she knows what she's about. But I don't know what you're about, Mr. Claude, and so I'm begging you to keep away. No good'll come of your actions. I don't trust any masterman that lives.' The car had stopped and emptied itself. The people were getting in. Fay climbed the high steps laboriously, dropping a five-cent piece into a slot as he rounded a little barrier. Claude sprang up after him, dropping in a similar piece of money. It tinkled as it fell, shivered through his nerves, with the excruciating sharpness of a knife-thrust. End of chapter 20